This morning we'll be continuing in our series on favorite Bible stories. And we come to a terrible but familiar story. The story of Noah and the flood. And as we journey chronologically through the storyline of the Bible, we see a couple things, even though we're only to the second story of our series. You'll remember two weeks ago when we spoke about creation, the defining mark of creation was that it was good. That God had created everything that man needed to enjoy a perfect relationship as husband and wife, as a family, a perfect environment, and a perfect relationship with Him. And then Genesis chapter 3 happens. And the serpent shows up on the scene and encourages Eve to do the one thing that God had forbidden that set in motion a terrible heritage of cursing for disobedience. The storyline of the Bible continues by Genesis chapter 4. One of Adam and Eve's three sons is murdered by the other. Nobody taught him how to do that. Murder. One generation removed from the original creation. And from that point on, it's downhill. People manifest their rebellion against God in new and different ways. You have Lamech, one of Noah's ancestors, bragging about how many men he murdered for making fun of him. You have the Tower of Babel. And you get to a point where God is sad that he has made mankind. You see, in Genesis 1.28, when God said, be fruitful and multiply, that was a good thing in chapter 1. But from chapter 3 onward, as mankind multiplies, so does his sin. So does his rebellion, to the point that God knows irrevocably he must do something. And the truth is, for our congregation, we know all too well the effects of sin. Death, tragedy, sickness, broken relationships. And so this morning, we have to claim, uh, we have to cling to the precious truth that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And so as we look at the story of Noah, I've entitled our sermon this morning, Keep Your Head Above Water, Sin, Grace, and Salvation. Three simple points, and I think a relatively simple sermon this morning. And so in order for you to keep your head above water, to avoid God's judgment, we, we have to... Um, See sin. Oh, I'm sorry, we have to feel the way God does about sin. And we see this very clearly in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. God's word says this. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, 
His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. Now there's a lot of interesting things in those verses that we just read. And if you want to know who the Nephilim and the sons of God are... Um, Pastor Reed is ready and willing to answer all your hard questions about that. (laughs) We're not going to go there. That's a juicy little tidbit of information when we talk about Bible and exegesis. The point is this. When we talk about feeling the way that God does about sin, what do we see? Well, we see that God saw that sin was intense pervasive, and internal. Sin was intense, pervasive, and internal. Look at verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was intense. The wickedness of man according to the Bible's testimony, was great. It was pervasive. Did you notice what is the prelude to verse 6? God's being sorry that he had made man. However we understand these sons of God and daughters of men, the Bible is not allowing us to say that sin is just a feminine problem. Sin is just a masculine problem. It is pervasive. Men and women are equally Wrong and corrupted by sin. And did you see how it talked about these sons of God taking the daughters of men? It says that they saw them, that they were beautiful, they looked good, and they took them. Does that sound similar to a Bible story that we perhaps have already heard? When the serpent slithered up to Eve... Doesn't this fruit look good? And says it was attractive to Eve's eyes. And she knew that it would be good to feel, fill her belly. And she took and ate from that forbidden fruit. It's the same thing here. The Bible says that every intent was continually wicked. And that as these people were fruitful and multiplied, as 6 verse 1 reminds us, Their wickedness grew and expanded with them. But sin is internal. Did you see that? Where was this wickedness located? Where was this evil desire? Verse 5, every intent of the thoughts of their heart. It'd be great if sin was something external. That by a simple surgical procedure... You could chop this little piece of your finger off and know that you were done with sin. You could get rid of this DVD and not worry about sin anymore. That you could sell this car 
and not have to worry about sin. The problem is that sin is internal. It is in your heart. And when the Bible talks about total depravity, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be. It doesn't mean that we are bad to the ultimate degree. It just means that every part of our being is affected by sin. Our desires are affected by sin. Our thoughts are affected by sin. Our relationships are affected by sin. So that the totality of who man is, is corrupted by sin. Total depravity doesn't mean that every human being is an Adolf Hitler. It just means that in every facet of our being, sin affects us. So we see what God sees about sin. But look at God's, secondly, emotion over sin. It was grief. Look at the verbs that he uses in verse 3. God says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive. Not going to fight. If they want to rebel, I'm not going to fight. I'll start over. I'll flood the earth. I'll get rid of the wickedness. Verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and that he was grieved in his heart. God's emotion over sin was grief. And as a result of this, man's wickedness, God's grief, God decides to bring judgment. Judgment is not a fun topic to talk about. But I want to tell you a truth this morning, and I don't say it with gladness in my heart. If we do not talk about judgment, we cannot talk about the gospel. Good news is only good when you have something to contrast it with. Think about the gospel written as large white letters on a dark background. It stands out because there's a contrast. And when we say that the gospel is good news, well, for the good news to be truly good, there has to be what? Bad news. That judgment is a reality. And the truth is, when we talk about judgment, we all like to get kind of squishy in our doctrine. We don't like to talk about it, and we shouldn't. It's a terrible thing. But how you feel about judgment is directly proportional to how you see and feel about sin. Did you get that? How you look at judgment is equal to how you view sin. So if sin is just a mistake, an indiscretion, a boo-boo, well then of course God is wrong to punish a mere indiscretion. But if sin is an affront to a holy, loving creator God, and even the smallest sin is infinite in its magnitude because God deserves all of our love and affection 24 hours a day, seven days of week, then judgment is bigger. So your view of judgment is intrinsically tied 
to your view of sin. And as God brings the judgment of the flood, we see a reversal of God's creation work. You remember how Genesis starts? With the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of the deep. And that God decides to separate the waters, and out of the waters he calls forth dry land. Noah's flood is the exact opposite. God takes the dry land, and now he covers it back up with the waters. God is systematically undoing what he has done in creation to punish sin. And the land is being submerged under the flood. This may be a crass way to think of it, but it's almost like the world is getting a bath to wash it from its defilement, to clean it up, to remove the dirt and grime. And so we have to make good use of God's grace to avoid this judgment. And we see this especially in the life of Noah. Look with me at chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. We pick up right where we left off, where God is sorry that He has made mankind. Verse 8, But Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. In the midst of all this darkness of man's continual corruption, his intense inclination towards sin, his powerful provocations of a good and holy God, Noah receives grace. And it's wonderful to see how Noah is described. He is described with kind of a catch-all term that lets us know that he was a good man. We're told that Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. It's not that he walked in the past tense, but walked in a continual, ongoing, day-by-day way. Noah was aware, like God was, of the ungodliness of his peers. And yet Noah chose the way of loneliness, choosing God over the sins of his friends. Now, no one, no one, none of us, can walk with God in and of our own accord. We can't. God gives us grace to do that. And Noah's walk was similarly motivated by grace. And we see this described further in the story of Noah. At verse 9, he was described as a man who walked with God, but he was a righteous man. It says it right there. Noah was righteous. In relationship to God, God looked at Noah and saw him as righteous. 
Every time God gave a commandment, Noah was specific in his obedience. God said, do this. Noah followed to the letter. Noah was not a shipbuilder by trade. And when God gave him the blueprint, you better believe Noah followed that closely. He built it exactly according to God's measurements. He was righteous in his relationship with God. Did you see the other way that Noah is described? He was described as blameless. While his peers might think he's odd, they could hold nothing to his account where he could be found at fault. So Noah was a man who had prospered in a right relationship with God and was revered by his peers for being one who was blameless. Friends, that is the mark of what it means to walk with God. To be in a right relationship with God and to be blameless in your relationship to man. Because Noah responded rightly to God's grace, when the skies opened and the deeps burst forth, he and his family were saved. We all know that water is necessary for life. After a hot day like Thursday, cutting that grass, mm, you don't even have to put anything in your water to make it taste good. It will refresh and revive your soul and bring vitality to your body. But there is nothing that pictures the severity of God's judgment like this flood. Where every living thing is snuffed out. Now, the the story of Noah is an interesting one. There's lots of debate. All kinds of people want to know, have we found the ark? Is it on Mount Ararat? Satellite images have taken photos. Perhaps. Perhaps. I don't believe in Noah's Ark because a spy satellite has taken a picture. I believe it because it's in God's Word. Whether we find it or not. But the flood story is one of continual debate. Was this just a local flood? Or did God indeed destroy the entire earth? Well, that is beyond the scope of us dealing with completely. You've got a few bullet points in your outline. If you're a person that likes apologetics, knowing how to defend your faith, here's a couple pieces of information you might find interesting. According to uh, this passage, uh, looking at Genesis 6 through 8, according to our best reckoning, Noah and his family spent 371 days in the ark. Now, that's assuming a 30-day calendar. But basically, we know from the Scriptures that on the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on Noah's 600th year of life, the flood started. In the year 601 of Noah's life, on the second month, the 27th day, the door was opened. Rain fell for 40 days. But the waters continued to rise for 110 more. This was not simply a bad thunderstorm. There was something cataclysmic that happened that was far beyond anything that you can imagine with simply rivers and creeks overflowing their banks because it was an intense storm. 
And so for the rain to fall for 40 days and for the waters to flood up for 110 more days after the rain stopped, it's too much to describe this as simply a local flood in one valley. As a matter of fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uses the Greek word cataclysmos to describe what the flood is. Now, that might be a catastrophe of local proportion, but it would not be a cataclysm. That's too big of a word to use something if restricted to one valley. Chapter 7, verse 19. Listen to this passage. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains in all places under all the heavens were covered. What did the writer of Scripture think relative to whether this was a local or universal flood? He uses the word all three times. All mountains, all places, under all the heavens. If you pay attention to the size of the ark, uh, we're not getting into the cubits and this many cubits and that many cubits. But if God only needed to save the creatures from one valley, then the size of the ark is absurd. 475 feet long by 75 feet wide by 45 feet tall. This is a massive ship on the scale of one of our massive tanker ships today. One commentator actually noted that a larger ship was not built by man until 1858. Why have such a large ship if only one small place needs saved? Let me up the ante here a little bit more. Do you remember God's promise in His covenant to Noah? What did He say? I will never, ever again destroy the earth by flood. This was only a, a local flood, then God is a liar. There are many local floods. There are many ways that we see flood symbolism repeated in our life and in our history. God's promise was not to destroy the earth universally again. And if that doesn't seal the deal for you, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus uses. Uh, he uses the flood as a symbol of his judgment when he returns. He makes a parallel between when he comes back to judge everyone, finally for the last time, with the judgment that happened with Noah's flood. Here's the question. Is Jesus' judgment only going to be local? Or is it going to be universal? Just like Noah's flood... Jesus' judgment will be worldwide. So learning how to defend our faith is fun. Let's make this a little more practical in our last point. We've seen God's judgment. We've seen Noah receiving mercy and grace and walking with God. But point number three, if we want to keep our head above water, we must celebrate the salvation provided through Christ alone. One of the distinguishing marks of this entire flood passage, Genesis 6 through 8, 
is this idea of God establishing a covenant with his people. And so it is first mentioned in chapter 6, but when the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat, we see much more information about this covenant, this special promise that God has made to Noah. And there are several things about this covenant that are worth us knowing. Number one, the covenant is unilateral. It is unilateral. God tells Noah, this is the covenant. Noah doesn't go, let me get my attorneys to check this out and, um, you know, quid pro quo, legal speak, sign on the dotted line, figure out if this works for us. This is not a contract for a house that you negotiate. God says, this is what I will do. And if you obey me, you will receive the blessings of the covenant. If you disobey, you'll receive the curses. So the covenant is unilateral. There is no negotiating, no compromise. God gets to announce. And God establishes the means by which people are saved. Did you notice that? If people wanted to be saved in Noah's day, what must they do? Buy a ticket for the boat. There is no other route of salvation possible. He didn't say, climb a high mountain. Well, you know, that's not going to help you. The waters continued to rise and covered all the mountains in all places under all the heavens. There was one way of salvation, and it was the ark. God doesn't negotiate. He establishes the means by which people are saved. God determined who would be saved. I don't know what the population of the earth was, but who did God save? Noah and his family and no one else. And the truth is, all of these things are true for us as well. God has determined the means by which man is saved today. And man is saved exclusively through Christ. You cannot be good enough. You cannot attend church enough. You cannot give enough money away or even die for your beliefs. And that make you acceptable to God. The only way we are acceptable to God is through Christ and through Christ alone. God has determined how people will be saved. And friends, God has determined who will be saved. The Bible says, whoever repents and believes the gospel will find eternal life. So God has determined not just the how, He's determined the who. And no matter how much we like or don't like that, guess what? It's a unilateral covenant. Take it or leave it. And so we go begging people to be reconciled to God. Because as humans, we don't want any to perish, but like God for all to come to eternal life. We can't sell God's covenant on the cheap. We can't say that judgment isn't a reality. We can't say that there might be other ways, and let's just hope for that. God has said who those who repent and believe. And he said, how? Through Christ alone. For the early church, the ark was a precious, precious symbol. 
Because only the people who were in the ark were the people that were saved. As a matter of fact, the ark became a symbol for the church before the little fish. You would find early inscriptions where churches would meet and they'd have carved in a cave or a catacomb a picture of a boat. Why? Because like the ark, it is the people in the church in Christ who are saved. If you're out of the boat, if you're outside of Christ, there is no hope for you except to repent and trust in Christ. Like the Passover, all of those without the mark on their door are lost. And in the same way, all of those who are not in Christ are damned unless they repent. And so like the flood, like, or like the Passover, the flood, those not in are out. Similarly, God does not grade on a curve. Those who do not repent and believe are lost. The covenant is unilateral. But the covenant, thankfully, is also eternal. A couple scripture passages here. Genesis 8.22. God says, While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. God will never flood the earth in this way as long as the earth remains. Chapter 9, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Verses 14 and 15 of the same chapter. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now friends, we know that there will come one cataclysmic time when God comes and he creates a new heaven and a new earth. But until that day, we have God's word that this is a perpetual promise. That until he comes to make all things new, he will not again destroy the earth in this way. So the covenant is unilateral. It is eternal. And friends, the covenant is gracious. It is gracious. Remember this. There was nothing in Noah to merit God's favor. No, put his pants on one leg at a time, just like us. There was nothing different about his nature. Noah's walk, his righteousness, and his blamelessness was a result of God's grace. And based upon the passage that we read at first, Genesis 6, 1 through 7, God says, My spirit will not continually strive with man forever. His days are limited to 120 days. Most Bible scholars believe that what God is saying at that point is that That 120 days is not what I think most people believe, that that is the the upper limit of man's lifetime. But that, that 120 days is a stopwatch from when God first issues his warning to when the flood comes. Noah's got 120 years to build this ark. And according to 2 Peter, not only did Noah build the ark, you know what else Noah did? 2 Peter says that Noah was a preacher 
of righteousness. So he'd have a hammer in one hand, and I guess I can't say he'd have a Bible in the other. That wouldn't work. Um, a parchment in the other one. Genesis 1 through 4. Um, you know, he had something in the other hand. And he would tell people of God's impending judgment. And for 120 years, Noah preached and built. God does not owe us any warning to snuff us out. We have rebelled. And yet God in his grace gives a warning through Noah's action and through Noah's words that a terrible, frightful judgment is on its way. And here's another small fact that I think we miss when we read. In chapter 7, verse 1, The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. And he gives further instructions to um, gather the animals. And in verse 4 he says, After seven more days... I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Did you catch that detail? God tells Noah and his family, get you on up into the boat. Get in the boat. And you know who shut the door to the ark? It says once his family got in, God was the one who shut up the entrance to the ark. But did you catch the detail? After God tells Noah to get in the ark, he leaves the door open for seven more days in case one would repent. The floods are being prepared. The faucets are turned on and the buckets are filling up. God is ready to pour out his wrath with these waters upon all mankind. And yet, to the very end, God keeps the way of salvation open for one more week for repentant sinners. And the truth is that the covenant reminds us that judgment is coming. Do you remember the extent of the promise? It is eternal from our perspective. But he says, as long as the earth remains... We know that the earth will not remain forever. And in chapter 7, verse 16, it says, Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And the Lord closed the door behind him. There will come a time where mankind will not be allowed to repent anymore. In God's grace will come to an end for that person. And we see Christ in this story. Because in John 10, do you remember what Jesus says? I am the door. He who enters through me will find life. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. 
truth is, in Noah's ark, everyone who entered in was saved. It would be a great thing to be able to say, everyone in this ark is as well. We can't quite say that. On any given Sunday, we have people who are visiting with us. We may even have church members who are not living out what they say that they believe. So friend, I would say to you today that God has opened a door for you. If you will repent and believe the gospel, today can be a day of new beginnings for you. Because like God, judgment is a terrible thing. We don't want anyone to perish. And so if you are uncertain of your relationship with God, at our invitation, it's old-fashioned. We give you a chance while the music plays to walk down and come here and talk with myself or one of our other ministers to understand clearly what the gospel is and what it means for how you live. If you're uncertain of your walk with God today, I encourage you to do your business with God now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that we get from the Bible. You are a good and gracious God. You have never done anything but what is for our good. And in our hearts, not just Adam and Eve, but all of us, have rebelled against you. Some of us in big and observable ways. Others in very sly ways that nobody else knows. But Lord, we know that before you, we all stand condemned. And our hearts condemn us if we will honestly listen to them. God, you are a God of grace who provides the way of salvation for us. But you tell us how, through Christ, And what we must do, repent and believe. And we pray that if we are ones that have um, made this good decision and lived this good life for many years, that you'll encourage our hearts to tell the good news of the gospel. Lord, if there are any here that need to make their way right, you are good and faithful and just to give them the opportunity to repent today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.